Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we've got Nat Clarkson and Dan Roselli. Um, Dan's been on the podcast numerous times in the past. Uh, this is Nat's first appearance on the podcast. As many of you know, um, they have spent some time raising um, a venture fund here in Charlotte called CFV Ventures. Um, the concept behind it is this a financial technology fund based here in Charlotte. Um, and they're investing in fintech companies that are um, part of the um, RevTech Labs program, old QC fintech program, in addition to fintech companies across the world. So we spend some time talking about that today, right? The concept of the fund, um, how how they're making investments across um, across you know um, different continents, um, why they're doing it that way, how it's helping them as a team learn, grow, um, recruit, um, and help put Charlotte on the map. So, anyways, thought it was a you know have wanted to do this podcast for a while talking to them about their new venture fund uh, needed to wait until after they'd closed the the fund um, before we could kind of talk about it out loud and in person over the podcast and then thought it'd be a nice way to coordinate it around doing some podcasts with some other members of the RevTech Labs program so great little podcast today normal length with Nat and Dan so certainly hope you learn more about what they're doing with the fund and how it's further helping put Charlotte on the map um, in all kinds of different ways. So Dan and Nat continue to do a tremendous job promoting Charlotte um, and um, and investing capital through the fund too. So enjoy today's podcast with Dan and Nat. All right, Nat and Dan, welcome so much to the podcast. Really glad to have Dan back on the show and to to welcome Nat on here as a first timer. Julian, pleasure to be here. So, Dan, as I told you just a few minutes ago, everybody in Charlotte knows who you are. So, we're going to skip your thirty to sixty second um, commercial, um, and I'm fairly sure the same is true with Nat. But just to make sure, since he hasn't been on the podcast before, and give him his opportunity. Um, Nat, can you just give us a little bit of background on, um, you know, uh, who you are, um, what you're up to? Sure. So I am uh, one of the two managing partners at CFV Ventures, uh, which is our, our venture fund that invests into primarily seed and pre-seed stage opportunities, uh, both those connected with the Queen City FinTech Accelerator, as well as externally. Uh, it's a broad FinTech definition. So for us, that means a lot of different things, including InvestTech, InsureTech, um, uh, capital markets, prop tech, and, and a number of, uh, of different sub-verticals. So it's an exciting place to be. Uh, and we've been fortunate to, to have had some great companies um, that we invested in. Before that, I was um, I worked with another VC fund that did seed and pre-seed stage um, investments out of research universities and uh, was an investment banker for a number of years, uh, primarily doing uh, sell-side M&A for uh, family-held and entrepreneurial businesses with Call Partners here in town that was um, later on acquired by Deloitte, uh, Deloitte Corporate Finance, uh, and prior to that uh, with Wachovia before it was acquired by um, by Wells Fargo. And um, 
I guess, uh, background originally from South Carolina and uh, briefly, very briefly, a lawyer. Um, and um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, it didn't take me, it's sort of the family business, but uh, it didn't take, uh, it didn't take me too long to decide that maybe it's, it's time for the family to take a different direction Yeah, for me. Um, so just one more point of emphasis since our audience listens in and doesn't have an opportunity to view it. Um, Nat has a much better hairline than, um, either Dan or I. So, um, um, I'll, I always get jealous when I have, uh, with guests with, a, with such a nice hairline like yours. Good to have a skill at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so, um, I mean, again, it's good to have you on the, um, on the podcast, uh, that both of you, man, I know we've talked about this for a while and we're waiting for a couple of different reasons to bring you on. Um, but let's just kind of hone in for a second and, and just talk about the, the fund and its formation. Right. So, you know, Dan, it's, you know, I think it's been right around 11 years. If I went back out and found a video of you, um, outside or inside of a, um, a broken, broken or still remodeled Packer place where, you know, you were standing up, um, standing up Packer place in and of itself. And and now here we are, Packer place is up and running. It's got a, a nice accelerator program in it with some great classes that have been through there. Um, but at some point in time, you know, you, you decide CFE Ventures is a, um, it, it's the right time to launch it. You bring that on board. Um, uh, just talk about how it came to fruition, right? What's the, what's the process to getting, um, to getting it up and running, um, over the course of the last couple of years, last couple of months. Yeah, no, happy to, happy to tackle that one. You know, our, our, it has been about 11 years, William, you're right on that. And, uh, we started with a, a launch party in, in a, uh, because the building was empty, right. And, uh, with a good DJ and an open bar. And we think we got 350 people from the Charlotte community to come to an entrepreneurial event, which, uh, I think they came for the free booze, but that might've been the largest entrepreneurial event, uh, at that point in Charlotte's history. Um, and we clearly had just kind of stepped on an unmet need uh, in the community, you know, from co-working when no one knew what co-working was uh, to, you know, the garage is the meeting space on the first floor, the not-for-profit uh, to the community, the Packer Place built into. Uh, and I described that uh, meeting, it's funny you should reference that, um, as the, you know, saying, hey, you know, Sarah and I have stuck our necks way out here and we have this blank canvas now called Packer Place what do you, the community, want it to be? So I've always described Packer Place as a really large community crowdsourced project. And people come to us and say, hey, have you thought about doing this next? And that's how co-working to the meeting space, uh, to the accelerator, to the, to the fund happened. Uh, you know, the accelerator is about eight years old now. Uh, and I didn't realize when you started an accelerator, you were supposed to have a venture fund with it. <laughs> so we did that the hard way. One of the, the nice things about that, though, is it forced us to go form relationships with venture firms across the country because our people coming through our accelerator needed funding. And so we built up a really nice roster that way, which I'm sure we'll talk about later in the podcast. Um, uh, but we needed some funding. And so in a class three, so the first two classes, we didn't take any equity stakes and no money went into the companies. And that was getting really hard to recruit companies with no cash up front. So in class three was right when equity crowdfunding laws They'd already been passed. It was when the regs came out, which took two years to get the regs out. And so within like a week of the regs coming out, we launched an equity crowdfund for class three um, with the idea that we use equity crowdfunding to fund the RevTech Labs program. 
Uh, and we got fund three done. Um, 20 investors raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and then when we did class four, I expected to have 40 investors and $400,000 and it would be half the work. And we'd be building momentum into the flywheel. And the reality was in class four, it was $180,000 with twice as much work. And uh, the, the warning bells were going off in my head. And uh, we didn't have time yet, but in class five, we did one last equity crowdfund raise. It was like 170,000 with again, twice as much work because we were getting five and $10,000 checks. And if you know how equity crowdfunding is supposed to work, is you put a value proposition out there, you can generally solicit, so you can advertise it, you can talk all about it, and people just, for lack of a better expression, chuck five or ten or twenty thousand dollars at it without ever having talked to you. Well, that's not how people raise money in Charlotte, uh, for sure. Maybe in other areas, and so that model wasn't going to work. And I had a number of good advisors and people, investors in the in the crowd funds, look at me saying, "Dan, you're doing all the work of a venture fund, meaning all the meetings, all the paperwork." with none of the upsides. You cho you've chosen the most painful possible path to, to go raise money. Uh, I said, why don't you just go do a venture fund? And so that's what we did and launched CFE um, starting with class uh, six. Uh, and then uh, one of the next great pieces of advice people gave me is, hey, you need a partner. You can't do this alone. Uh, people want to see uh, a breadth of expertise on the investment committee. They want to see a breadth of expertise in the general partnership group. And so we went out and looked for, uh, for another general partner, and we're, we're thrilled and lucky to be able to find Nat. And you heard his background earlier, so you know why he's a great uh, combination um, for that. And we've had, we had great success today. Yeah. So Nat, on that point, and, um, and Dan, um, I know you'll see this as a compliment. You built Packer Place in the accelerator um, as a, like a Boeing 747, as it was running down the, down the runway, taken off. And it's a, it's a beautiful plane and it flies really well. Um, but so Nat, knowing that he built such a great accelerator program as it was running down the, the highway, um, as you're talking to Dan, um, what's your thought process from the early on stage of coming in and, and being a partner in CFV Ventures? you know, how do you see it taken off and, um, you know, walk me through those early conversations in your own head, right? Because we all always talk through opportunities in our head. So how'd you see it? How'd you see it taken off, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Well, I thought it was a good base. Uh, clearly, as you mentioned, it, it had a lot um, going on and a nice track record and, and a, certainly a few nice investments. So that gave me some, um, yeah, I guess, confidence that it would be uh, a nice place to start. And then I had to look through the portfolio uh, of existing investments and think what would what would be attractive to an external investor? Would these be would these be the types of investments that someone would want to invest in? Um, and then could we continue the strategy in such a way that would uh, you know continue to be both profitable um, and of interest to external uh, investors LPs? And I felt good about that. Uh, I think we um, you know it was a great base to start from. And then as we moved forward in time, we uh, tweaked it. Uh, we've changed the structure of our investment. Um, we think it's a, a little bit um, more appropriate now. We've changed uh, the amount we put in. We've changed uh, the, the sectors that we, we kind of get involved with. Um, we've had some synergistic stuff uh, with a number of other groups. So it's allowed us to take the base uh, and then grow it. Um, and so before we weren't as we always had some amount of activity across the broad fintech platform, but um, you know, having more activity in certain sectors like prop tech, uh, I think has been has been beneficial for us. 
It also helps us bring in more um, partners to help grow the business as you know, we certainly have investors that are, in that, are interested in that particular sector or capital markets or insure tech. Uh, and then we've also um, had the ability to go up and down the spectrum a little bit with um, helping larger companies uh, based on our ability to uh, help them grow uh, our track record and our sort of connections across the general ecosystem. So the companies that we've started to work with have um, by definition and, and pretty much by design changed a bit. They used to be uh, largely pre-revenue um, and certainly had some nice, nice successes there, but now they're largely post-revenue um, and can be more than a million of, of ARR. So, you know, we've had to adopt the way, adapt the way that we, we work with those. So we continue to, to add value um, both to the companies and then by extension to our investors. So it's, it's changed. It was a nice benefit. It was a nice place to start, uh, which I, I thought was attractive. And I thought it was something that could be further adapted to something that could continue to be successful uh, working uh, with larger investments. Yeah. Um, kind of similar vein, right? I mean, the, the accelerator program is, is now a diverse, it's, a, it's got more than just fintech companies as you just, you know, highlighted a second ago, right? You've got some prop tech, some insure tech and some, um, and even some health tech, I believe in there so far. Does, does that make it easier to raise money because people, you know, it, it appeals to a broader scope of folks. In other words, healthcare people might be interested because there's a healthcare company or two that filters through and uh, prop tech. Is it, is it easier to raise money? Is it, as it diversifies itself a little bit as an accelerator program? It's a good question. Um, it's something we don't really know the answer to yet. Our, our <laughs> first fund was, uh, is FinTech uh, focused, but broadly defined. So uh, things that fall into that that bucket, um, and you know, as we move forward and we think about other funds, we'll have to to sort of define what we uh, would want to invest in. And for us, it you know, some people take a a, a sector specific focus, so they want to be experts in one particular area, and and you could argue that that can be successful, but it also has some some negative implications. So, you know, for example, you could have been the best hospitality investor uh, two years ago, but you probably would have underperformed uh, over the last year uh, due to COVID. So, uh, you know, we, we tend to be a broader, take a broader approach and, and look at what is the best investment we can make uh, and then, you know, make sure that it fits within our investment purview uh, versus sort of more, you know, the opposite approach. Yeah, and I think as we think about other other funds, we'll have to see where do investors, you know, where they're more comfortable. Are they are they comfortable being in a broad fund that that is a little bit less sector specific, uh, or do they want to diversify their own holdings? So they want to invest in a particular, you know, a, an early stage fintech specific kind of fund, and then if they're interested in other things like health tech, they'll go find one of those. Yeah, um, and we don't know yet. So I think it'll it'll ultimately depend. A lot of our our legacy LPs tend to um, skew towards the former that, you know, they, they tend to like a broader definition and, and are more interested in just what might be the best investment. Um, but that may not be the case going forward as we, as we hopefully grow and, and have uh, different types of LPs and uh, moving forward. The other thing that's, that's interesting is our geographic focus. So it tends to be about 80% uh, domestic with our, the secondary areas where we invest being Canada and the UK, uh, but we have uh, companies we've invested in all over the place, uh, including you know, Nigeria and um, Latin America and others. Uh, and that's really because we believe, uh, again, in, in trying to find the best opportunity or what we believe to be the best opportunity. 
there are some geographic considerations that you want to have. Uh, there are certainly uh, potential tax advantages to investing in domestic companies, so those have to be kept in under consideration. Uh, there are certain areas where we feel more comfortable with the regulatory regimes, um, and so you know it's one of the reasons that it's it's developed the way it has. And also, we want to be able to help companies that, or be able to get involved with companies that we can help. Uh, one of the, the classic things you hear about venture capital is you don't just want money, you want you want money, good money, money that can help you, smart money. And we try to be able to do that. And we were able to leverage somewhat of the, the accelerator and our own um, connections as well. And so we look at companies where we can be helpful. And so if, if a company, for example, we've, we've seen some very good um, applicants and, and companies out of India, for example, where they're very focused on the Indian market, we have in, at the present a limited ability to, to add a lot of value to them. So even though it may be a really good opportunity, we may not feel that it's, it's appropriate for us. Um, and hopefully as we, as we grow, we'll have more coverage and be able to, uh, you know, um, be able to add value on a, a, in, across the board. But, but right now we do invest internationally. We do invest in a few different stages and a few different subsectors, uh, but we really do want to make sure that we feel uh, good about understanding it and, and being able to add value. How helpful is it to have a fund that's not just taught because it's not right. I mean, you're making investments outside of, out of RevTech labs classes, right? You, as you are, how helpful is it to have a fund? It's almost like a, it's almost like a marketing tool, right? You can go into a, a new country or a new area, invest in a local company, um, provide some support, some value. Does that then ultimately help grow the brand of the accelerator program too? We hope so. I mean, or, the companies are, are linked, uh, but they're they're independent. So there's a, a you know a working relationship between the two. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, I think that helps in many ways. Some of the later stage companies we've worked with uh, have been through the accelerator. Um, you know, are are from external areas or outside of the U.S. Um, so I, I do think it's synergistic, but it's also independent. So yeah. Absolutely independent. But I mean, I wonder, like, does it, um, and then it gets kind of the natural lead in question after that is as a result of it, you know, how much further are you helping put Charlotte on the map to folks that wouldn't have known about Charlotte through both programs, right? I mean, how much, um, how much further are you raising Charlotte's flag through both of them? Well, we've had some nice success there. Uh, for example, I was recently, um, I was interviewed in, in Forbes uh, for the Ukraine uh, because a, a company we invested in has relocated their, their headquarters to the UK, or sorry, to, to Charlotte, uh, Upswat. Uh, it's a company we think a lot of, you know, yep. of the founder in them. Uh, and because of that, we were, uh, we were um, highlighted in, in, in that particular magazine. And, and it was a nice way to get our, um, you know, our name out there in a region where we, I think, otherwise might not be known. So certainly there, there have been opportunities for that. And the one thing I'd add to that, William, is we continue kind of building the holistic ecosystem, which has kind of always been our approach. And the venture fund is a uh, component of that, right? It's a leg in the, in the stool of building it. And it's not just the accelerator, um, but if you think of the, the venture conference that we built, the Venture 135 event, you know, now being the largest um, venture event in the Southeast. And while it's still focused on, you know, fintech, insurtech, and health tech, um, there's also, and it's kind of series A, series B ready companies there's a component for uh, international companies coming in that are probably post Series A, um, have a fully developed tech stack, 
uh, have a founding team, probably have a big client or two. So they've jumped through procurement hoops from big companies and cybersecurity hoops. And they're looking to enter the U.S. marketplace and they want access to U.S. venture capital firms. They want access to U.S. strategic partners. Uh, and that you know puts Charlotte on the map globally um, because we're out there recruiting and talking about it with, with partners. We're also leveraging things like Venture 135 on the on the smaller end of the spectrum. You know, the the, the emphasis on traditionally underrepresented founders, that's the term we use. So I think female founders or founders of color, um, you know, RevTech Labs and CFB had had a strong commitment to that from the very beginning. Um, you know, over half of our companies um, have a female founder or founder of color on the founding team. Um, and that's very unusual in the fintech and insurtech space, or sometimes just in the technology space. And while you see a lot of venture funds where there's a whole lot of, you know, white male founders, and now you have a lot of, of specialized funds popping up too that will focus on, you know, um, uh, female uh, GPs that have created a fund to help female founders or people of color who have had exits who are, are focused on uh, helping other founders forward. We're, I think one of the few funds that you look at that has. Um, um, I think naturally and organically through very purposeful recruiting, um, gotten nice diversity uh, in our founding team. And I would argue that's helped our returns, um, not at all a, a sacrifice of our returns, because I think we've found opportunities that other people have skimmed over or missed because they're not swimming in those lanes and seeing that activity. And the reason I brought all that up was at the Venture 135 conference, we've also added a segment for traditionally underrepresented founders because the, the frustration that, that we had is at the Series B level, which are still a lot of rich old white dudes, you know, kind of throw up their arms and say, hey, there's no diversity, but you know, it's not our fault. Here's the metrics we need for Series B funding. And there just isn't diversity in those founding teams and kind of would wash their hands at the situation, which I personally think is a bit of a, a cop out because we don't have it at the B level because we don't support you know diversity at the Series A level. And we don't have it at the Series A level because we're not supporting it at the seed an angel level. And so the segment we added to Venture 135 was for seed and angel level um, uh, founders of color, traditionally underrepresented founders to have opportunity to present, even though they're early, right? They're kind of pre-venture capital stage to at least provide social capital for them. The ability for them to get up on stage, the ability for them to get feedback on their pitches, the ability for them to meet venture capitalists that a year from now um, could be funders for them with the idea that if we grow up uh, and support at the seed and angel, the beginning levels, uh, a nice, robust, diverse group of founders, we will naturally get uh, a nice, robust diversity at the Series A and the Series B level um, over time, because there's some great founders that are women, there are great founders that are people of color, there's great founders everywhere, and we need to be supporting them. So that's the other thing that I think we do in terms of creating visibility for Charlotte, uh, is that's one of the best events for traditionally underrepresented founders, at least in those industries, uh, in the U.S. every year. Yeah, which brings in a good point too. I mean, right, right with venture, um, with the the conference that you've you've run for the last, gosh knows however many years. This will be the fourth year coming up. It'll be the fourth year. Um, so, one of the one of the things that y'all have done a great job at, and I can only imagine has helped with the fund itself, is as you mentioned earlier, right, the roster of VC partners that have come in as a result of of the conference. So, um. So you've built friendships, you've built allies, you've built, I would imagine, some investors into your portfolio companies and everything else. How, um, 
how much have y'all learned from those VC? Like how did, how much have they helped y'all stand up and refine your processes and refine, I mean, um, how much do y'all lean into those partners over time? Um, or are you saying, you know what y'all do it, um, y'all do it the old fashioned way. And, um, as a result, you fund a bunch of middle-aged white people and we don't want to do that. So we're going to do it our own way. Or is it a little bit of both? It, well, maybe I'll take a, some of the infrastructure side early on and then let Nat speak to the co-investment and how we deal with the relationships with them. Um, but early on, right, I mean, the, the, at least in North Carolina, the venture community is very collaborative. I, I talked to the folks from um, um, Bull City Ventures and Idea Fund Partners um, and, uh, and even TTV Capital Atlanta, and, and everyone was very gracious about sharing their knowledge. Mike Elliott from um, uh, is here in Charlotte, uh, kind of giving advice and, and wisdom on it. Even the law firm that we ended up hiring, the management company we ended up using for the fund were referrals from other venture capital folks uh, in the Carolinas. So I think that is um, actually really, really helpful. So Nat, how much do you lean into them now from a, kind of an ongoing basis, um, you know, trial by fire, et cetera, et cetera, the, the venture partners? Um, so, you know, we have great relationships with a large number of them. Um, and the great thing about venture capital in general is it's very collaborative. It, it, most deals are syndicated. Um, and as a smaller fund, we tend to not lead. So um, we often try, sometimes we'll help companies we like a lot and we'll make some introductions to see if they can find a lead. Um, but, um, you know, I think we really do value those relationships. We, we try to work with them and share deals that we like a lot and they, they usually respond in kind. So, uh, I'd say we collectively lean on each other a lot. Um, we find it very helpful. Clearly, it's good to get some of the bigger funds involved uh, as our companies grow up and and search for that Series A or Series B funding. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we all have a little bit of different investment theses and, and area sectors and stages where we we want to be involved. But it, it's very helpful, and we certainly welcome their input. When we when we look at a deal, we we value what they say and what they think. It won't necessarily be determinative for us uh, and, and vice versa, but it is uh, it's something we take very seriously. It's the collaboration piece, I've always kind of been curious, right? I mean, you see a company, um, a company X that meets, you know, all 14 of your metrics, whatever it is, right? That you're really pleased with. You, you like the founders, you like the space, you like the wind that they're back. You like all of these different things. And you take it around and you've got a VC fund that's going through due diligence with it. And you're almost kind of, you're, you're in it now with the founder, right? You, you want the, you want the founder to hit the raise. You're excited about the investment. And then next thing you know, you get the no, um, you know, how, how do y'all respond to, um, do you, do you drown your, your sorrows and, um, or drown your tears and beer with the owners? Or do you just say, you know what, it is what it is. We know the next, we know another venture capital fund that we can introduce it to and we're off and running. Yeah, I mean, we, we try not to serve in, in sort of an investment banking role where we're really yep. representing the company. It's it's more introductions that may be mutually beneficial of something that we think would meet their investment criteria and um, they'd be interested in because everybody is interested in, you know, good deal flow. Uh, we often do more than one investment, so it doesn't tend to be sort of on a, a linear basis. We will do uh, several uh, at once. And, you know, sometimes we have a, a difference of opinion and, you know, that that's the case and we just move on and we'll, we'll continue to share deals and, and hopefully vice versa. Um, usually they have good input, uh, but they just may or may not have the same sort of thought process that we do. And, and, and also because we're early stage, we tend to do more investments uh, than others, uh, more but smaller. 
Um, and, and it's very nice because of our sort of presence in the ecosystem. We often are considered strategic partners or strategic investors. So sometimes we get invited to things that maybe uh, we ordinarily wouldn't be invited to join if it were just our money. Um, and, you know, it, it, we think about it because if you look at some of the data, you would say that only 5% um, of, of companies get more than a 10x or, um, you know, even a fraction of that become 50x or more. Uh, we have the we have some some ability to do a larger number of deals because of the accelerator, so that helps on that front. Um, but also, we we do invest in in a fairly wide portfolio because we're at the early uh, early part of the funnel, and you have a one thirty x return and and uh, you know ten one x losses, you're you're still doing fairly well. So um, you know, I think where we are, we we do tend to to do more um, and have more of a portfolio approach. Uh, and then as we, we partner down the road, other comp other funds uh, do a little bit more of concentrated uh, investments. Yeah. And to that collaboration point before we move off it, William, um, you know, I think a lot of people misunderstand that venture funds are competitive with each other versus they're actually far more collaborative with each other. Um, uh, venture funds want to know each other. They want to have relationships with each other. They want to share deal flow with each other. That kind of makes sense. You know, very rarely are people taking down the entire round by themselves. There's some firms out there where that's their thesis, but most of the time they want other people along because it's another set of eyes. It's another set of expertise. It's another set of relationships. Um, and so it, it it's far more collaborative than it is competitive. Um, here's the other thing I'll say a little tidbit that I don't hear advice getting said often. So if there's any founders listening, um, uh, should pay attention to, venture firms talk to each other. <laughs> they think that we don't talk to each other. And I'll tell you what, if you did something to wickedly piss off idea fund partners, I'll probably know about it when you come to ask me for money uh, and vice versa. And so um, I, the recommendation I always have to founders is, uh, always take the high road when you're dealing with the VC community. And even if some VC does something that you think kind of pisses you off or gives you the right to be angry, um, take the, the high road on it because the venture community is a, a small little world. Yeah, no, I think that's um, that's certainly good advice in the small world of that. It's probably just good advice in general, right? You never know when um, you'll need to turn back around and shake a hand that you didn't realize you were going to need to shake again. Um, before we kind of circle around and talk about kind of Charlotte and venture and raising capital and all of that stuff that, you know, um, one of the things that you said earlier, Nat, is something that I've, I've given a lot of thought to recently, um, is as a result of books, a book somebody has sent me, it's called 6 billion shoppers. And it talks about the emerging markets community, right. And how that space is continuing to grow and, um, how all of those folks have come online, as consumers with a cell phone in their hand, whereas traditional American and European consumers came online, first going to a bank or first going to shop at a store, all these people are doing their transactions, they're shopping, they're banking, all of these different things um, on a phone. So it's a completely different experience with them. Um, and in the investment world, there's something called home country bias, right? Where how much how much do you have in your portfolio that's U.S. versus international? And you mentioned making an investments overseas in you know Nigeria and Ukraine and some other opportunities. Um, how much do you see the 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 fintech space exploding internationally um, versus here in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Is it different? Is, is it 
is it happening at a faster pace over there? Are they doing different things than we're doing here because they get to skip over a step that we're still stuck in here in the U.S.? How's the um, how's international fintech different than U.S. fintech? I guess is the ending ending point of my question. Sure, well, that's a, certainly a broad uh, question, so I'll, I'll give a few points. Neck yeah, uh, gets all the softballs, man. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, like I said, it's, it's a two and a half hour podcast, so we got yeah, um, yeah. we got some time to kill here. All right. Um, so it, it, there are definitely some differences uh, that you know when you talk about, particularly in, in Africa, for example, and in Sub-Saharan Africa, that's, that's an interesting application because they did sort of skip in many ways the um, the physical infrastructure piece, and so it went straight to mobile. Uh, and there's some really nice and interesting uh, growth opportunities there, and we've seen those where we've sort of struggled on a few of them is even though they that someone may have a, a new application whether it's insurance for um, you know, for automobiles or, or motorbikes or things uh, or a variety of other applications it, it tends to be a large number of very small transactions so then the question for us uh, is often okay can we get a venture style return um, for for investing into that given the volume that they would need to to get to to generate the, the kind of top line revenue um, and certainly the, the, the opportunities are there, uh, but that's one of the things that we've seen that are, 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 it's a little bit different is the numbers are smaller or the, the dollars are smaller, if you will. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's where we, we struggled to some degree. Um, I do think there are definitely differences around the world. Uh, certainly emerging markets tend to be more mobile, uh, whether that's Latin America, Africa, um, and, um, and, and parts of, of Southeast Asia, for example. Um, there are Asia, Europe may be a little bit ahead of the U.S. in certain areas, such as, as payments. Um, I think we tend to be a little bit ahead in, in things like capital markets uh, and potentially prop tech, although that one um, is a new enough sector where it's it's kind of hard to tell. Um, and you know, it, it it does matter a little bit on the regulatory regime and what you can do where, and, and we do kind of take that into account as well. How transferable is this particular? application. So for using the, the Africa example, again, it may be something that's very applicable in parts of Africa. Uh, and we've seen, for example, one that was in, in probably all the French speaking areas of, of West Africa. But how easy is it to transition? Is that a big enough market? And then is it something that can transition to other markets, whether developed or developing? Um, and so you know, that's another area for us is what is the ultimate exit plan, who, who would buy this? And, and maybe that's sufficient. We, we invested in one in Latin America that had uh, a particular niche um, in in, um, in ecosystem. And their goal was to kind of roll up Latin America. It was not under the, it was not a focus of, of some of the big behemoths in, in the United States, for example. And if they were able to get critical mass, it would be an appropriate acquisition target. So that was part of their exit strategy. Um, but, you know, we, we would want to understand why that is and make sure that it's, it's potentially profitable as is if it weren't acquired by, uh, you know, North American entity that's trying to expand in Latin America. So uh, that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, there are differences. Some of them uh, we'll invest in and some we won't. Uh, and it just sort of depends. It's really kind of the way it, each situation is unique. When you make an investment like that in the Latin American company, did they end up, were they part of the accelerator program? That particular one was, yes. They were. Okay. I was going to say, what do you, um, are you, is it all about the, I guess it is, right? You're running a fund. It's a financial return. You're making a bet on something. You're not learning from it. You're not taking the application outside of it. 
when you make a bet through the fund, it might be different than something that comes through the accelerator program. The accelerator program might accept a, a company into it that uh, fills a specific niche for a specific person, but the fund itself, I mean, gosh knows at the end of the day, you're there to make money, right? So you're looking for the financial return component of it. Yeah. And we've had those situations. And, and that was, for example, one in Africa uh, where we've had companies we've really liked a lot, but we couldn't justify a fund investment. Yeah. So we weren't able to provide the, the fund investment. And we do keep that very much at the front of our mind that we have a duty to our, our investors to invest in the best deals that we think can make money. Uh, that may or may not always be the same companies that, that the comp- that the accelerator would like to, to have in. But if the, if the fund puts in money, it's for financial return. So is, do you get an interplay with that, Dan? I mean, you look at a company called it Africa or Europe or something else, and, and you can't get there on the financial return component, right? So it, it ends up not being a fund investment. Is it something that you can pull through that you, you tell them to apply through the accelerator? And now all of a sudden you get a better almost a better due diligence opportunity to see how it plays, what its actual return could be, et cetera, et cetera. So you almost get double benefit from that perspective. Yeah. So there's two, two things in there to, to dissect one. Um, uh, we do think there's an opportunity to, uh, to bring them through the accelerator. And again, going back to the comments I mentioned earlier about traditionally underrepresented founders, um, we actually have a program to do just that. So to bringing in founders, that may not get an investment from CFE yet, um, but can come through the accelerator program and basically have their slot uh, funded by a sponsor. So it would be the, here's LPL financial um, slot or fellowship for this cohort uh, and and maybe give them, well, they couldn't give them an investment, give them some non-dilutive money for expenses during the program. Um, So yeah, we're we're in the point of of trying to get on board our very first companies uh, in that process. The, uh, the second component about the look, uh, you, even whether they get a investment from CFV right away or whether they don't and go through a program like I just described, the fact that somebody comes through the accelerator program certainly gives us an opportunity to get to know them. Um, we've even talked, you know, um, a part of the, the thesis is that, uh, you know, we get to know them and live with them for 12 weeks versus what a normal due diligence process, you know, you might spend a couple hours. We're spending more time with these founders in the program than you might spend if you were buying a $100 million company in terms of due diligence. Uh, plus, they get exposed to our other advisors, our other mentors. We get you know, feedback from multiple, multiple data points, not just ourselves. And so we think by the time somebody graduates the program, we just have a much better feel uh, about who we think the, uh, the takeoff stars are going to be. Yeah. Um, so shift gears for a little while and talk about Charlotte. Um, right. I've been in Charlotte for 10 years. I love Charlotte as home. Um, my daughter is born here. My son, um, immediately adopted the Panthers as his favorite team. So we're Charlotte. Your kids do that. None of my kids will root for the damn Panthers. Yeah. Well, I mean, these days that might be a good thing, right? So, <laughs> um, but, um, the, or at least last year, um, but I mean, so we're Charlotteans, right? And, you know, with everything that we love, there are downsides to the things we love. And one of the downsides is it's hard as hell to raise money in Charlotte, um, right? I mean, it's um, it's been a tough slog for just about anybody out there. Um, so um, what's the, but you did it, right? CFE raised money. Um, it's operating as funding investments. It's proven a track record. And oftentimes it's the, is putting the first step down makes it easier to make this the second step. What's the future of venture in Charlotte? Uh, you want to go first, Nat? 
Sure. Um, you know, clearly we have to have some, uh, we have to get involved and we have to uh, show some success. And I think today is starting to change that way, both from uh, a few venture funds that are active in town like ours, uh, as well as, um, as some, some nice larger kind of uh, maybe unicorns or, or close to it companies that are in the technology space that show that it, that it can happen here as well. Uh, one of the things that has resonated with me or two, two comments that I've, I've often heard is that um, Charlotte is an underwriting town, not an investing town, uh, which you think about it as, you know, so they're, they're more about underwriting cash flows and things. And, and you do see that aspect to some degree. Uh, and also that people in Charlotte made their money by avoiding risks, not taking it. Uh, that's another one that, that people kind of talk about. And, and you know, that's that's fair. Uh, and, and there are certainly investments out there that appeal to those types of investors. We think it is changing uh, for the aforementioned reasons that you know, we're, we're showing some success, that we're showing some nice, um, some, some good investments that are both native as well as is brought into the region through our programs and others. Uh, and some of the successes that people have had in, in some of the larger companies uh, here in town. So it's changing. It's a little slow. Uh, hopefully people will will get a little bit of a FOMO uh, when they look out west and in other areas and, and think, you know, maybe I should be involved in this because obviously we think that uh, it's certainly there's risk to any investment and, and um, alternatives as much as any or more. But, um, but it depends on the structure and, and what it may do to someone's investment thesis. Uh, we, we think we, you know, we've got a good one. And um, and hopefully that will, uh, and others do as well. And hopefully the the whole situation will will start to turn. And, and I think it is. It's just um, it's a bit of a battleship. So we get. I mean, you get the benefit a little bit too of some some FOMO right here in Charlotte. With you know, I guess an avid exchange likely going public at some point in time over the course of the next twelve months. Which, um, you know, Passport probably not too far on its heels. Um, some healthcare companies that have gone public too, as well as some that have had nice exits. So, um, I mean, you're starting the ecosystem, starting to produce winners at a decent enough pace that you should get some FOMO or fear of missing out by the time you're into your second round. Right. Shouldn't it, should this, does that make it a, does that make the future of venture a little bit more, a little easier to raise capital in the future? But, yeah, I think it does. Uh, well, I hope it does anyway. Um, <laughs> that, so, makes two, that makes two of us. Um, so, you know, certainly I, I think that the, the positive outcomes uh, certainly help. There's a little bit, you know, as we think about it, of, of okay, your local ecosystem, and, and I think it is changing um, in our favor for the, the companies that you mentioned. That we're getting a lot of, of net um, migration in, particularly in the technology sector. So it's it's certainly becoming more of a, of a, of a thing here in Charlotte. But then in general, the, the familiarity and comfort with early stage investing, whether it's a locally founded company or one that may relocate here or just be somewhere else. And is that, is that something that investors or, or others would like to be involved with? And, and, and I think they are. We certainly have people that are willing to uh, work with our companies in the accelerator and, and volunteer to be on their advisory boards and, and, and others. Um, and again, uh, like you said, if, if you can see something uh, and, and you can really make that uh, a something that's really you can see here in town, you know it's happened, uh, you can witness it. I, I think that goes a long way to, to getting people, uh, if not comfort, at least familiarity. Yeah, and it, the only thing I would add to that, because I think all of that is true, you know, the momentum begets momentum. Um, and, and people forget when we talk about raising money in, in Charlotte, it's hard, 
it's hard to raise money everywhere. I mean, I don't know a city in America where the investors go, we don't have enough good deal flow. And the founders are going, we don't have enough investment dollars, right? I mean, just, you could play that script in any city in America. Um, and, you know, we talk about overall community impact of RevTech Labs over, um, uh, you know, 11 years, it's, you know, almost two and a half billion in venture raised and the 300 million plus in exits in the last, you know, three years. Um, and, you know, venture funding from 70 different venture firms. Um, there is money to be had. Good ideas will get funded. Um, I, I always try to be a little delicate when I say this because I know no founder wants to hear their baby is ugly. Um, but sometimes the the things that somebody's put their blood, sweat, and tears into and really believes in is not what the marketplace believes is a fundable proposition. And the marketplace may be wrong, um, and that can certainly happen. There could be a false negative. But most of the time, it, and I tell this to our founders, right? If we you you shop around to multiple venture firms and you get passes from you know, after you talk to 100 people, well, that might be telling you something about the fundable nature of your or business or not. So I don't want to say our ecosystem is perfect in that regard. Uh, and there's certainly work to be done. We talked a lot about, you know, um, uh, access to capital for traditionally underrepresented founders. We talked about access to capital for people that may not know where to go in the angel groups. You know, maybe the angel groups criteria are a little advanced for the stage of funding they're trying to do. So there's clearly room for improvement, but it's not it's not all doom and gloom, and I am a um, glass half full person on the, the funding ecosystem as it exists today and the trend line for where it's ha- heading in Charlotte. Yeah. Um, so recent announcement here was Apple is moving to a headquarters, not a headquarters, but the movement of footprint up the road to Raleigh, right? And um, Dan, I don't know if it was one of your viewpoints in 2010, 2011, but Raleigh, Durham area, area was certainly ahead of the cur- ahead of us then, right? They they'd had some things going on for a decade or two more strongly in the, um, in the startup space. And, um, you know, you kind of put us on the map back in 2010 and have continued to drive it forward. Um, since then, um, do, do we worry a little bit about how much or the direction that, that startup and venture, can take a community, right? I look at, I mean, you look at San Francisco and there's a lot to like and be jealous about San Francisco, whether being one successive startups funding venture capital being two, but there's some things that they've missed. I mean, do we worry a little bit about what venture and successive startups and somebody like Apple coming in crowding out equity or capital um, can potentially do, or do we just continue plodding along because we, we know there are a lot of benefits that go along with it. And my personal opinion on this one is I think that, tailwinds that provide for a great environment in the Carolinas or North Carolina, or you want to say Charlotte, um, are now benefiting big companies and small companies, where before we had an entrepreneurial ecosystem, there was nothing for it to kind of cling to. And what was great for recruiting companies like TIAA to come to Charlotte, um, it didn't have any pull in the, in the entrepreneurial community. And now it, now it does, because the quality of life here is great. There's an entrepreneurial ecosystem to plug into and once we kind of had foundational mass or inertia there, uh, it really it really took off. Um, and I will argue that it's not an either or equation with someone like an Apple or this conversation came up when Amazon was talking too. Yep. Um, that uh, what North Carolina should be doing and has been doing for a long time has been a net importer of intellectual talent from other parts of the country. Still, I mean, Charlotte's one of the fastest growing cities in the United States, and I don't think that's going to slow down. North Carolina is one of the fastest growing states in the country, and I don't think that's going to slow down. 
And that's a net positive for, for us because it gives you more revenue, more resources, and you can take that with smart management into a lot of places. So I see Apple coming as a huge positive because it's just going to draw more and more talent in. And, and I also think one comment that people sometimes overlook, having um, multiple legs of an economic development stool from big companies to entrepreneurs uh, is a good risk mitigation strategy for the region and for Charlotte. Um, and Nat talked about sometimes how conservative leaders in Charlotte can look at the world. And so talking about entrepreneurship as a risk mitigation strategy has been an effective way to get them to think about it. Uh, and, and you think about it from an individual standpoint, 11 or 12 years ago, it was impossible to get someone to move to Charlotte to join a startup because the, what went through their brain is, oh my God, if this startup fails, where do I go? There's no startup ecosystem. There's no easy place to go. Uh, and now, as we all know, if a startup does go under, unfortunately, Charlotte, especially really good tech talent gets gobbled up instantaneously. And there are times where if a startup goes under, you know what, fine, I'll go take my job at Apple for a yeah. couple of years, build back up my 401k plan and my Bennies and put some money in reserve. And then I'll take my next shot of my entrepreneurial loop. And that going back and forth from the entrepreneurial world and the quote unquote corporate world uh, is just so common now that I think it's a positive ecosystem. So I mean, it's a really strong point. Um, and we're kind of wrapping up on our time. We've got a couple more questions kind of baked in. We've we've danced around prop tech and insure tech um, and health tech a little bit um, as we've talked about RevTech Labs, right? Um, but when you, when you think about it, they have a path to success just like FinTech has had um, over the course of the last 10 years in Charlotte, right? I mean, we've got a theoretical university system coming here um, or um, a medical university coming here. We've got property that, you know, people, people have loved buying property in Charlotte for decades. Right. Um, and so that's a, a natural place for the startup ecosystem to skate into over the course of the next five and 10 years. Is that, um, and then naturally brings up funding opportunities too. Right. I mean, we've, we've got a lot of places we can grow this ecosystem that will need capital. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and now you want to chime in on that one? You look like you were going to say something. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think, um, you know, PropTech, for example, uh, is, is able to benefit from, from FinTech as it sort of redefines itself as its own vertical. Uh, it took two years for it to get to the same level of net funding that took FinTech four years. Um, and so I think people are becoming more comfortable in general, and and you know, once one segment has started to have some success, it helps people get comfortable with other similar segments. Uh, so I do think, in general, uh, as the early stage investing market matures around the world, uh, those are positive tailwinds. I, I would also reiterate what Dan said about the glowing or growing the ecosystems here. Uh, the more you have, uh, the better. I think it helps spin out new opportunities and other things. Uh, a great book I read about the new economy of jobs by Moretti that says that Silicon Valley and others have been successful because they have those concentration of resources and it makes it easier for collaboration. So I think that's positive, even if it's, you know, um, a couple hours up the road. Um, and, you know, the, there's other opportunities that you mentioned. We have some particular success or, or I guess, uh, skills in, in some verticals uh, more than others. I, I think Charlotte's getting to be big enough to where we will have you know, the ability to really function in most. But uh, for example, health tech is something that we uh, have some, some good skills in here uh, versus you know, research triangle park areas, probably 
going to be deeper for a long time when it comes to um, biotech and pharma. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, opportunity. There's still opportunities here. Yeah. Um, so, but but yeah, I do think prop tech is is a nice one. Insure tech, um, uh, capital markets certainly, um, and other areas are, are are places where we think Charlotte can can play a a little bit of an outsized role. When I think of like fintech over the course of the last decade, um, Dan and Nat, I think like I'm I'm imagining old school, right? The movie Old School, um, when they're when they're getting together, their fraternity members, right, and they're driving around in the the van and they throw the, um, they throw the bag over the guy's head and um, grab them and throw them. I imagine that was what it was like to get fintech companies coming to Charlotte ten years ago. Um, and it's, for, it's, for the record, yeah. I've never thrown a bag over anyone's hand, <laughs> throw them in the van. I want to make that perfectly clear for all the listeners. Fair enough, but it could have been that far the first time, right? I mean, it had to be damn near close. Um, but now it's it's you're you're not having to do that. It's it's nurturing a system, right? How's how's it different now um in the ecosystem um for CFV to talk to companies? with Charlotte in a mind is, I mean, well, when you fund a company, it'd be nice also to have a move here, right? Not necessarily the case, but have some type of footprint here. But what's the difference these days with the you know, prop tech, insure tech, health tech versus what it was with, um, and um, probably as recently as three or four years ago with FinTech? Well, yeah, I think I'll use the example of, of UpSwat. They had gone through a program, um, in uh, I guess the the Midwest and, and decided to open originally from Ukraine and they decided to open up their headquarters here um, specifically because of the Charlotte ecosystem. It's it's got a lot of positives. Uh, clearly, you know, it's always been sort of second largest or, or third largest uh, banking center in the United States. Um, but a lot of that ecosystem is highly accessible uh, and, and it's very collaborative. I think that's one of our our primarily our primary positive attributes is people were willing to help. You can get in and talk to people that really matter, C-suite level uh, people. So that is, is very attractive. You've got you know, the, the net ecosystem that's growing. We've already talked about, we've got the, the travel advantages. So if you do need to go anywhere else, certainly um, you know, Charlotte Douglas allows you to do that. So it's got a lot of tailwinds in terms of, of access to the appropriate good resources. And talent. Uh, it talent's a little bit cheaper here, but but certainly high quality. And so um, these are all of the things that kind of come together when we look at, at companies that decide to relocate here of why they want to do it. It's very good at um, at banking and and, and other fintech related um, verticals. Uh, it provides a lot of support, and um, you know you may have to find funding, uh, not not entirely relying on on Charlotte for that, but but uh, a lot of the. Um, intellectual capital and intellectual support is easily accessible. And William, let me add one thought on that. I'm a big Brad Feld fan, and he wrote a book about nine years ago, Building Startup Communities, another version has come out. And it's funny because when we even started back in Packard Place, his thesis made so much sense that it was really kind of the thesis that we started back with the Charlotte Entrepreneur Alliance uh, 10 years ago. So folks listening to this who are on that original group 10, 11 years ago will get a chuckle out of that. But one of his things was it had to be entrepreneurial-led, to build ecosystems. And two, um, there are a bunch of things, but one of the other ones was you had to have a 20-year vision. And even though Boulder was 15 years into its process, they're looking 20 years from now, not five years from now. And I think that's important for Charlotte to think about, you know, 10 or 11 years into our entrepreneurial journey, we shouldn't be thinking about the rest of those 10 years. We should be now looking at what's possible over the next 20 years. Um, And I'll tell you, just like people thought we were crazy, 
when we bought a downtown empty downtown office building in the middle of the greatest recession we've ever faced, thought we had lost our damn minds. And then when we started an accelerator, people thought it was crazy. And then you look at the fact that we were able to remember the first class, we were able to get a company from New York and San Francisco to move to Charlotte for uh, RevTech Labs class three, people's jaws dropped. And, and I think we've kind of um, continued to need to build our swagger a little bit. And, and I'll end that that thought with, with a bold comment, which is just like we've turned Charlotte into a FinTech hub and, and soon a health tech hub uh, and an energy hub and just a general technology hub. I think 10 years from now, if people are listening to this podcast, I'll make this prediction. I think Charlotte will be one of the hottest venture and investment communities for early stage investing anywhere in the country. I think we have everything we need to make that happen. Um, and I think that will happen. Um, and I'll let you finish. Um, I think that's a, a great prediction. Um, and I'm not going to argue with you um, live. Um, and I probably wouldn't even argue with you privately over a beer. Um, what needs to happen between now and then from a funding um perspective right cfe and others right what what do we need to see happen in this space to make that a reality so i'll start i think we need to get more capital in into venture um obviously i'm, I'm biased towards that but at that, that I, I would expect i would expect you to be this fair <laughs> um and so, you know, I think in that capital probably needs to be both broad and deep. So that, in other words, it should be able to go from pre-seed to seed to uh, series A and, and potentially beyond. Um, and then we also need to be able to cover more uh, sub-verticals or verticals. You know, we've talked about a number that are, are under FinTech or related to FinTech, uh, but there's also health tech and there are other, um, other sectors, SaaS and enterprise and, and um and AI ML, which is very popular these days and blockchain and things that, that uh, I believe we have the capacity to support um, and we need to be able to be involved with those. These are, these are to some degree, uh, future defining technologies. Uh, and we have kind of the intellectual capital here to support those. And now we need the financial capital to support those um, and be able to continue to support them. So obviously Charlotte Angels and, and Venture South do a fantastic job on the early stage but we need to be able to take those uh, further and, and not have a giant gap between sort of the friends and family round uh, or angel round and then series A or, or B, which which is very, very hard to come by around here. And, and that's true really across the Southeast. There, there are certainly some, uh, but it's not it's not as dense of an ecosystem for, for that stage of funding. Yeah, it, I agree with everything Nat just said. I, I wanna build on one point um, you know, as he talked about the angel community growing up here, and then there being a, a valley in the in the venture community. Um, if you go past that valley, though, if you go to the growth and the PE firms, um, we have more growth in PE firms, the hundreds of millions of dollars of funds, maybe than any city, you know, but New York. Um, and and what we're trying to do is solve that middle soft spot in the venture muscle. It's like having a huge right bicep. I guess if you had three arms and a really soft left bicep, right? So the angel community, while it's not there yet, it's growing, it's robust, it's getting better. Exits from Avid and other companies will continue to make that more robust. So it's really the venture community. Um, I give a shout out to, to, to Brandon and team at TFX Capital, another great venture fund headquartered here in Charlotte. We need to see more of that to be happening in Charlotte. Um, you know, uh, the ability for us to go on and do new funds, bigger funds uh, at CFE will also be part of that journey for sure. 
Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to new new um one, two, three, four, five, six out of CFV. Um, hopefully I can say that out loud. Um and um, you can say whatever you want. I good. I well good. I, I guess that's the benefit of the host, right? Um, so and I mean, you know, look, I mean super excited for you know some of the portfolio companies, super excited for what y'all have done over the course of the last 18, 24 months in the venture space. Um, and can't wait to see it continue over the course of the next 10 years and see, um, I don't know, Dan, I guess you, me, Nate, will have to meet in 10 years. And maybe at that point in time, Nate's hairline will look a little bit like mine and yours. And we can talk about whether or not your prediction was correct. There, there we go. I'll buy the drinks. I hear you. I look, to it, look forward to it. But thanks again to both of you for being on the podcast again today. Thanks so much. expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and the opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.